0: Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening and I pray God's spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. You know, sometimes the things that we hold most tight in life are the very things that are stealing our ability to live the free and flourishing life that Jesus desires for us. Let me say that again because I think that that kind of frames what it is that we're being invited into together this morning. Sometimes... The things that we hold most tight are the very things stealing our ability to live the free and flourishing life that God intends for us. And so as I thought about that sentence this week, I, I, it brought to my, apparently I only think in like movies and TV shows because it made me think about uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Quick show of hands so I know whether or not we can be friends. Who's seen that movie? Okay, good. The rest of you? You have homework, there's no church next week, so <laughs> you got plenty of time. So there's this, uh, if you haven't seen it, the, uh, the entire movie is this like near-death experience of them trying to find the Holy Grail. And uh, spoiler alert, they find it at the end. And if you, didn't, yeah, if you didn't know that was gonna happen, you should really crawl out from the rock that you live under, because that's how stories work. So they, they find the Grail, and uh, upon finding the Grail, they, they are given one piece of very critical instruction. This Grail that they find is not allowed to cross this seal that is in the cave in which they find it. That's like one rule, right? It's like Adam and Eve. You had one rule, don't break one rule. And uh, and of course Elsa, one of the not the not the like Snow Witch, the other the the, the pre-Elsa, the first Elsa. She's one of the uh, she's a Snow Witch. Elsa is the... uh, See, here's what's going on. I'm not preaching with a manuscript anymore, so just settle in. This is what's going to happen. So... So Elsa is one of the villains in this story and uh, she's there with Indiana Jones and she does the one thing that they're told not to do and she takes the grail across the seal and uh, long story short, an an earthquake erupts, the ground splits beneath them and the grail falls into this crevice and she falls with it and she's holding on to Indiana Jones' hand. He has her one hand uh, in his two hands and she's reaching for this grail and he is pleading with her through this like let go i like if you don't if you don't stop reaching for that and give me your other hand you're gonna fall there's just like so much urgency in his plead with her and she refuses to listen she can't let go of this thing that she is striving for and reaching for that's just beyond beyond her fingerprints uh, her fingertips and then of course she slips out of his hand and she dies And you'd think like that tragic end would be the end of the story. But then Indiana Jones, of course, falls into the crevice himself. And he finds himself in the exact same position that she had just been in, except his hand is being held by his dad. And if you haven't seen the movie, there's this just tension and conflict between he and his father that exists throughout the entirety of this story. And so his dad, though, is just pleading with him, keeps calling him Junior, Junior, just let let it go. Like, let let go of it. I can't hold you. You're going to fall. The same thing's going to happen. And you just see this kind of like sick, greedy desperation in his eyes for a moment where he thinks like, well, I know that she didn't make it, but if I reach just far enough, I can get this thing. And so then there's this amazing turn where in this strong but tender tone, his dad says to him, Indiana, let it go. And if you've seen the movie, you know, one of the points of conflict is that his dad just refuses to call him by his preferred name and instead calls him Junior. No one in the history of time has ever wanted to just be called Junior. But in this moment, his tone changes and he connects with his son through the use of his name, but he's conveying this really urgent message, let it go. And he does. He does and he throws his other hand to his dad, and he's pulled to safety, and then they ride off into the sunset, and it's a spectacular movie. And if you haven't seen it, now you don't need to. That's everything that happens. (laughs) But I was thinking about this week because that moment in that film illustrates this very point, that sometimes the things that we hold on to most tight are the very things that are stealing our ability to live the free and flourishing life that God intends. And what you're going to see as we get into our text this morning is that the primary theme into which Paul is writing as he closes this letter is is the practice of generosity. And so when we think about how oftentimes the very things that we hold most tight are those things that are stealing our ability to, to, to live free and to flourish in the way that Jesus intends, I don't think that's probably ever more true than when it comes to money. And... The reason that I believe that 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 is true is because do you know that there are over 2,300 verses in the Bible on money? That 15% of the time when Jesus is speaking in the New Testament, he's talking about money. 11 of his 39 parables in the New Testament are all about stewardship and finance, And so clearly there's something so critical that we need to understand about money. Money is a good thing. It's a gift from God for sure. But if we're not careful, we can hold on to the things in our lives so tightly that they steal our ability to live the free and flourishing life that God intends for us. And so Paul knew that. And Paul is writing to address this issue of generosity with the Philippians. Now, the good news is, Generosity was a practice that they, they like really understood. Like every, every church develops a culture and every church has certain things that they are really strong in. And there are certain things that some churches are not very strong in. Like at Ridgeline, we're really good at being sad. That's like, <laughs> apparently like that's our thing. This is the place you come to cry. So every church has things they're strong at and every church has things that they, that they struggle with. And the Philippians were really, really strong in this area of generosity, especially when it came to working in Paul's life and with his ministry. And so in Paul's praise of them throughout these final verses, here's the, the big idea that I think he conveys to them and that I think is really important for us to understand. Generosity is an invitation to let go. Ultimately, the reason that generosity, the reason that giving, the reason that stewardship matters is because it's an invitation for us to let go and to live with open hands. There is nothing that God gives us that we are owners of. We are stewards of everything. And so generosity is our invitation to let go. And I wanna get specific about this because Paul gets specific about this. So he's really gonna show us two specific invitations, two, two ways in which we are invited to let go, all right? If you're taking notes and you like to write things down, here's the first one. Number one is this. Generosity invites us to let go of our expectations and partner with God. Generosity invites us to let go of our expectations and to partner with God. Now listen to these first verses. Paul starts and he writes this. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again, you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. And I don't say this out of need for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot in any and all circumstances. I have learned the secret of being content Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. Now, there's a bunch of different things in these verses that I love and that I think are very, very important. But the first thing that I want to draw your attention to is actually the very first thing that Paul says. Because notice that Paul is so quick with gratitude, He's constant, like it's it's hard to go even one paragraph in this letter where Paul's not rejoicing about something. And again, I don't know about you, but I find that baffling. Because if I were Paul, I would have been so preoccupied, I think, with the fact that I was in prison. But that doesn't seem to be Paul's preoccupation. Isn't it weird that this whole letter is not just about how much prison sucks? Like, if, if I was in jail and I was writing you a letter, I'd be like, the beds are uncomfortable. I have to use a toilet in front of other people, which is, I would hold it forever because that is not my thing. And the food's awful. Like that's what our correspondence would be like. But Paul barely mentions the fact that he's in prison because he's too busy expressing gratitude. And that is not a small thing. He seems to have this habit of constantly seeing God's goodness in everything. And it's amazing that he's able to do that. And so the thing that, like, I, I, I think that that's really hard for us, right? Seeing God's goodness, especially in difficult circumstances, is not easy for us. It's very, very hard. I've noticed that we kind of have this, like, I'll just, I'll, I'll own this personally, and you can see if you identify with this. I have like a yeah, but mentality, And by that I mean, so like when life is really, really hard, and things are difficult, and something good happens, like I do experience some expression of God's goodness, I immediately have this like recoil in my heart that thinks, well, yeah, but but life is hard. I know that that's a good expression of God's presence with me, or that's a good expression of God's provision for me, but the truth is life is hard right now, and I want to sit in what's hard. We have this like, yeah, but mentality. Yeah, that's, that's an expression of God's goodness, but life is hard. It's amazing to me how Paul flips the script on that. He kind of goes the other way with it. So he would say, well, yeah, life is hard. I'm in prison. I don't know where this is going to end. So yes, life is hard right now, but God is being so constantly kind to me. So it really has everything to do with what we choose to see. And so as I was thinking this week about like, well, how do we, how do we become, how do we flip the script on that? How do we be this other kind of yeah, but people that even when life is hard, we're able to see these expressions of God's goodness to us. And and here's what I think we have to do. We have to have the funeral on the expectation that life has to be comfortable for God to be good. We, we have to let that die. We have to be done with the expectation that in order for God to be good in my life, life has to be comfortable in every way. Because I love you and I want you to know that's never gonna happen, this side of the return of Christ. And so if our expectation is in order for God to be good, life must be comfortable, we're going to be miserable all of the time, forever. Forever. And it is no way to live. So instead, we have to choose to see, to dwell on, to focus on God's goodness, even when, especially when, life is hard. Now, here in our text this morning, the specific reason for Paul's rejoicing is that the Philippians had come through on this financial gift in his hour of need. So apparently, you know, he had a long history with the church at Philippi. Apparently they had supported him after he left financially so that he could continue to go and to plant more churches. They had a pattern of doing this and this is yet another time that they had come through and they had done that. And so he's rejoicing that they had been generous in his life that they had given him this gift so that he could continue to minister. But it's like, as soon as he is talking about how he's rejoicing, it's like he has this fear in his head that they're going to think that his joy, that his gratitude and his rejoicing is contingent upon his comfort that they had helped meet. And so as a result, he, he's, he's like, whoa, whoa let, let me just hit the brakes right here for a second, because I want you guys to understand that, that with or without this gift, I have learned the secret of perpetual contentment, which is kind of bananas, right? Like, have you ever gone more than like 13 seconds feeling content? It's like one of the most elusive human experiences for us. It's hard for us to feel content. And so he's like, man, man I've, I've learned the secret, which he says in verse thing, I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, here's a problem with that Verse. I would go so far as to say that is probably the single most abused verse in the entire Bible, okay? Because we have completely stripped it out of its context and we have used it to apply in any and every pursuit we could ever be a part of, right? Go to Hobby Lobby. I guarantee you that this verse is on all kinds of horribly ugly uh, decorations, okay? It's everywhere, And so if you've got some really challenging physical feat that you're up against, this is your verse, man. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Maybe you're a sociopath and you want to be president of the United States. This is your verse. Oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Maybe you have some job, a promotion, something that you're trying to accomplish, some goal you're trying to achieve. This is your verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, the problem is, when Paul says all things, he's not saying anything and everything. Like Paul had something specific in his mind. It isn't this general promise to all of humanity that if you are a follower of Jesus, you can achieve anything you set your mind to. That's not even remotely what Paul's talking about. So here's a really important principle for us to understand. It's three words. You can memorize it. You probably don't even need to write it down. This is one of the most important things to keep in mind when you read Scripture. Are you ready? Context constricts meaning. Got that? Context constricts meaning. So the context of what a person is actually trying to convey, it constricts what that verse actually means. Now, unfortunately, in especially within Western Christianity, we have this mentality with scripture where we just sort of cherry pick verses and then we say they mean whatever we want them to mean. But that's not how any kind of communication works. And definitely we should never do that with the communication from God's own mouth. So context constricts the meaning. And so when Paul says all things, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, he's talking about how he can be content in any and every circumstance. So guaranteed, you've heard this verse before. And I wonder how many times you've heard that what it actually means is that in any and every circumstance, we can be content. That was Paul's experience, and it can be our experience as well. And the reason that he was perpetually content and that he knew what it was to be content with little and with much, is because he had positioned himself to receive God's strength. And the truth is, we are all able to do that. Sometimes we have a way of turning Paul into like a superhero. He's like an avenger when it comes to being a Christian. And the truth is, Paul was a guy. Just like I'm a guy, and there are Women in Scripture who are amazing, and they're women just like you. There's no superheroes in Scripture. There are no super Christians. There are just normal people following Jesus. And Paul was just a normal person following Jesus. And this can be true of us as well. The problem is, sometimes we're not willing to be content in all circumstances. That's one hang-up. Sometimes we're not willing. Because again, going back to what I said a few minutes ago, we equate comfort with contentment. So even though in the midst of your difficulty, it is possible through Jesus' strength for you to be content in the midst of it, we're not willing because we go, no, 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 I will be content when I'm comfortable. But another reason I think that we miss this in our lives is that it's not a matter of willingness. Like sometimes we're just not very wise about it. Meaning we don't position ourselves to receive strength and to rely on Jesus. We determine that we're gonna go through life by our own strength. And I'm telling you, that is a recipe for discontent, discouragement, and disappointment. We have to have the wisdom to sit with God and to rely on his strength. And so the biblical story that I was thinking of this week when I was reading this is, I don't know if you remember about that night described in the Old Testament where this man named Jacob wrestles ultimately, he doesn't realize this, but he's wrestling with God physically wrestling with Jesus. It's called a theophany where there's this appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament and he's unnamed. And so Jacob has this night where he's wrestling with Jesus through the night and he won't relent. He won't let go. He's like a dog with a bone and he just continues to fight and to struggle and to wrestle. And to the point where Jesus even says, all right, I'm I'm, I'm out. I got other things to do. Let me go. And I don't know if you remember what Jacob says, but he says, he said, I will not release you until you bless me. And I wonder what it would look like for us to have that mentality when it comes to prayer, specifically in this arena of contentment. Because again, we just, we want everything to come quick. We want everything to be like drive through fast. And so we want to be able to run a thousand miles an hour and then to be able to just go, all right, I could use a little bit of your strength right now to be content and then back at it. And God's, I don't know if you've noticed this about him, he's just like not in a hurry. Ever. I mean, isn't it weird that in the New Testament there's not one time Jesus runs? Just straight chilling from start to finish. He's just not in a hurry. And there's something that that has to form in us. That we are willing to slow down and to move at his pace. And I know how hard that is for us. But until we do, there are certain blessings from God we will not receive because they don't come quick. So in addition, Paul's real focus again, coming back to his overarching theme and point, has to do with this topic of generosity, And he specifically is expressing his gratitude that they have chosen to be generous and that that generosity was partnership with him. And ultimately because of that, it was partnership with God. And I wonder how often we think about, so when you like, let's use, we're in church and let's use this as an example. Uh, When we come back uh, in September in two weeks, one of the worship elements that we're going to bring back that we stopped doing uh, coming back from COVID is we're going to actually take the offering every single week. And so, I mean, like 99% of our giving happens online, but we're still going to pass a basket because some people do prefer to give that way. And number two, I think it's really important that we make the connection between worship and giving. It's an act of worship where we are opening our hands and we are giving back to God from what he's blessed us with. And we are saying, I want to trust you. To provide for me. But in addition to that, when we give, one of the things we're saying is, Lord, I want to be in partnership with what you're doing. So how amazing is it when you really think about it, how it's staggering that we are invited to partner with the transcendent God of the universe to move his cosmic plan for humanity forward. That's bonkers. So I was thinking that this week, it's kind of like it's kind of like God has chosen to crowdsource his kingdom. Right? Like we, know, we all know what crowdsourcing is. It's when like there's like some project or company or something that, that doesn't have all of the, the, the funding that they need. And so they basically like invite the public at large to participate with them to make this thing. Like Tyler has invested in like countless number of crowdsourcing. He's like the Kickstarter king. Okay. So we know, we, we know what that is. And there's a sense in which like that's kind of like what God's done. He's invited all of us to partner with him in moving his plan for this world forward. Now where this illustration breaks down is that like, when companies do it, it's because they need it, right? And the truth is that God does not need us to participate. He's not like hard up for anything. Which to me is all the more reason that it's an amazing gift that God invites us to. Because it isn't ultimately about him, it's about us. He's inviting us to the joy and satisfaction of knowing, man, God is using this comparatively small gift that I'm going to give week in, week out, or every month. God's going to use that to expand and to move his kingdom forward. We get to participate in the most important work that God does on this planet. And that is an incredible gift. So this first invitation to let go that Paul gives us is this, generosity invites us to let go of our expectations and to partner with God. But there's a second invitation and that is this, generosity invites us to let go of self-protection and profit from God's blessing. Generosity invites us to let go of self-protection and to profit from God's blessing. Look at verse 15. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. And notice how he clarifies again. Not not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received in full and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now this is, again, especially the end, is a, it's a very personal point in the letter where he's like really talking to them. He's not just talking about like broad doctrinal principles. He's writing to a group of people. But woven into the personal com- com- uh, comments is a critical principle that does very much apply to us. And that principle is this. I profit when I'm generous. And you profit when you're generous. That's what Paul said in this. He said, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. Now, the word that we translate from Greek uh, into English as profit, it's the Greek word karpos. And the word means fruit, as in consequence of some effort or action. So think about if you literally plant a seed and you care for the soil and you water it when it needs water, and you provide sunlight where it needs sunlight, what happens? It grows. And in some cases, it like literally bears fruit. And that is exactly the word and the picture that Paul's trying to convey for us. That when we are generous, that there is some way in which we profit from the blessing of God. Now, if you're anything like me, every time you hear this kind of language, there's a little thing in you that recoils a little bit. And the reason that I'm prone to recoil is because I have seen the abuse of what we call prosperity theology, which is the lie that if I give God money, he is obligated to make me healthy and wealthy in response. That's in a nutshell, prosperity theology. It's extremely popular and it's horribly demonic. But the problem is not that we have this promise that God blesses us in response to our generosity. That's not the problem. That's actually true. That is a promise. Our problem is we stop with the promise of blessing and we don't press into Paul's description of the blessing. Because again, it's not just this like fill in the blank and God will bless you however you want to fill in the blank. Paul goes on and he's specific about the manner of God's blessing. In fact, he gives us two things. Blessing number one, he says, is that when we live generous lives and when we give, we please God, which is amazing that when we do this, we know that God's heart swells and that he is pleased. Paul refers to it as a fragrant, their gift is a fragrant offering. So remember, Paul's background is Judaism, right? So Paul was very familiar with being in the temple during these seasons of sacrifice. When things like incense and spices and even animal sacrifice was put on these altars and it was burned and it would have been a very, very multi-sensory experience, but there would have been a scent, a fragrance that went along with it. So like Friday night, Lincoln had a birthday party right before dinner so I ran him to this birthday party and I was coming home and I was in a pretty big hurry to get back because Tammy was grilling burgers, which is my love language. And so I pull into the garage and I jump out of the car and as soon as I opened the door, I could smell our grill. Like you ever walk through your neighborhood like on a summer evening and you can smell like miles away. Somebody's grilling. I could be like two clicks from puking because I'm so full and I'm like, I wonder what they're eating, that smells really good. (laughs) There's something about that where we smell it and we think like like, that is a pleasing aroma. I mean, unless you're a vegetarian and then I feel sad for you. But listen, so there's a sense in which Paul says when when we give, it's like God smells the aroma of that practice and he is pleased and he is blessed and he loves that. So blessing number one is that when we give, we get to please God. But there's a second blessing that's also very significant for us practically. Number two is he promises to bless us with provision for our needs. He promises provision for our needs. Now understand, and this is where I think prosperity theology falls so short. Paul's promise of provision is so much bigger than just money. So there's a sense in which the big problem with prosperity theology is that the doctrine is too small. Because God promises more than that. Paul, Paul says God will provide for not your financial needs, not just some of your needs. He says that God will provide for all of your needs. Now, typically, there's, a, there's something that if you've ever heard any pastor preach on this, there's probably a sentence that's super cheesy cliche that you have, you have heard a pastor say. I've even said it. I'm embarrassed. This is my moment of confession, Okay. They'll always say something like, hey, but, but pay attention. Notice that Paul says that God will provide for all your needs, not all your greeds. Right? Isn't that horrible? Shame on me and every pastor who has ever said that cheesy, like they don't even have that at Hobby Lobby, it's so bad. <laughs> <clears throat> and here's the, the problem with that, other than just it's like terrible, terrible, embarrassing sentence. The real problem is it is that there's subtext in it that says that our desires are bad. That's the subtext. God will provide for your needs, not your greeds. And so these things that you desire, they're wrong and you're bad. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I just don't see that, man. I, and here's what I think that beneath those. Now, again, God does not pr- promise to provide for every single thing we want. Amen? Sometimes it seems like that would be awesome, but God has not promised that to us. But that doesn't mean that the things that we desire, that the desire themselves are bad. I think that beneath those desires is a need that God does in fact promise to provide. That if we would take the time to stop and to drill down beneath these things that we desire, I believe that beneath them, we will often find the need that God does actually promise to provide. I'll give you one example. Um, Oftentimes, if someone is single and especially single later on into life, and they have a deep desire for marriage, um, that, that, that is something that you would pray. Lord, please give me a spouse. Now, that's not a bad desire. Marriage is a gift from God. It's not everything. You're not more righteous or more holy or more Christian if you're married. That's absurd. But it is a gift from God, and many people desire it. And so as a result, that would be something that, that, that one would pray about. And sometimes, God doesn't provide that spouse. But here's what I'm getting at. If you were to drill beneath that desire, ultimately, what we find there is this desire for the comforting presence of another. And God is anxious to be that. And so I would say that we should pay attention to our desires and that what we should begin to do is to be good stewards of them by drilling beneath them and say, like, it's, it's good to, like, if you want to have a spouse and you don't have a spouse and you want to pray about it, pray about it. You have a spouse and you don't have kids and you want to have kids, pray about it. Think that's, but just don't put words in God's mouth. Because God has not promised to give us everything that we want, but beneath these things that we want is more often than not a need that he will in fact be happy to fulfill. So generosity invites us to let go of self-protection and to profit from God's blessing. Now let's finish up verses 21 through 23. Paul says this, he says, greet every saint, which is just another word for other Christians, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Now listen to this last sentence. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ Be with your spirit. I think that final prayer from Paul is critical to the whole letter. Because there's a lot of amazing instruction that Paul gives through this letter. And there are some invitations, like the ones that we've seen today in what he teaches, that are huge, and they are hard, and they are difficult for instance, rejoicing in the midst of hardship is very, very hard. And so it is not by mistake that he closes this letter saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So I was thinking about this week, and I had this, this image of like a super nice car. And so think about whatever your favorite vehicle is. I know it's different for everybody, but just imagine you've got this beautiful brand new gifted vehicle to you sitting in your driveway that's paul's letter okay it's everything that he calls us to it's everything that he commends to us that car is a picture of everything that paul says but a car just sitting in your driveway without gas isn't much good right unless you're living in it and then something went real bad in life It has to have gas in order to go anywhere. And my point is to say, grace is the gas of the Christian life. It is impossible for us to do the things that we are invited to do in scripture apart from the empowering grace of God's spirit. And so what's amazing about God is that he doesn't just set this impossibly high bar for us and says, good luck, do your best, go after it. He paints this picture instead of a full, meaningful, content life. And he says, I'm going to give you the grace necessary to run after that and to experience it. And so Paul closes with a prayer rather than a challenge. So it's like, man, I know my letter's filled with challenge. And so here's the the last thing I wanna pray for you is that the grace of God would be with you because you're gonna need it. And so that's where I wanna close our series together and our time together this morning, praying that God's grace would go with us in Christ this morning. And since Paul closes with, a prayer. Shannon and I thought it would be a good idea if we did as well. And so she and Matt uh, are actually going to sing over us. And so I'm going to invite you to just stay where you are. Uh, You don't have to stand up and you don't even have to sing along. I would actually invite you to just sit back and be comfortable and to close your eyes and to receive the blessing of God's grace this morning that is offered to you. And I want you to know, man, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, that this grace is offered to you. Jesus Christ gave his life in your place for your sin and simply invites you to receive that grace this morning and to follow him. And if you've never done that, I'd invite you to make that decision this morning. And we would love if you joined our church family as we work to follow Jesus together. So let me pray for you, and then I'm going to invite these guys to sing over us, all right? Father, we thank you for every good thing that you have said to us through this series. We thank you for every encouragement, but we also thank you for the ways that you've challenged us, the ways that you have sought to correct us, And we thank you for this pretty grand vision that is painted for us through this letter of being able to be a people of joy and encouragement even when life is hard and discouraging. And if I'm honest, Lord, it often feels unattainable to me. And so I thank you that you don't ask me, you don't ask any of us to somehow achieve this on our own, that you have promised us the grace necessary to experience every single thing you call us to. And so, Lord, we ask you for grace this morning. And Lord, we end where we started. You know the condition of every heart and mind and life. You know the things that we are holding in this place this morning. And so, Lord, as Matt and Shanna, sing over us. I pray that our souls would absorb grace as a sponge absorbs water. Fill us with your grace, your mercy, your love, your compassion, and your help. Because we need it. We love you, and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.